Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, looking at verses 18 through 30 this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to find one there in the row in front of you. And uh, that is on page 846 in that Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we would love for you to take that Bible as your own, as a gift from us, so that you can have a copy of God's Word. John chapter 13, again, 846 in that Pew Bible. John chapter 13. In our study of the Gospel of John, we saw last week how Jesus exemplified servanthood to His men by washing their feet. This is the beginning of uh, what is known as the Upper Room Discourse, uh, the next a bit of passages here have to do with Jesus' conversation with those who are closest to him. And a lot of instruction, a lot of encouragement, especially as he is so close to the cross. We were careful to say that we should see how this foot washing fits into the entire narrative as a part of that upper room discourse, as well as the context of the entire biblical narrative as well. In light of this, we now see the foot washing becomes the context in which Jesus begins to speak of his betrayal. Therefore, I've entitled this this morning, The Betrayal of Jesus Laid Bare. And this morning we do indeed see uh, this as Jesus speaks of it in our passage. We're going to need to back up a little bit in our text this morning to get the context of, of where we are. If you're able to, would you please stand with me as I read the New Testament reading this morning, John chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 12 through 21 as a way to get us sort of into the context here. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to Wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He, or quite literally, that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. You may be seated. That is the reading of God's Word in the New Testament reading. May He bless it in both the Old and New reading aloud this morning. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, even as we confess this morning in our prayer, we believe that Your Word is inspired and that the Apostle John wrote these words under the inspiration as one carried along by, as Peter says, the Holy Spirit. And therefore, Lord, we believe just as these Words were inspired in the original autographs that uh, your spirit now can illuminate our understanding. And we pray for that this morning, that our eyes, the eyes of those who are in Christ this morning, would be opened, that we would receive, that we would obey what commands you have for us. Uh, Lord, knowing 
that none of our righteousness does anything. It is Christ's righteousness that does everything and the Spirit uh, who moves us to obedience and we cooperate and submit to that. And so Lord, we pray for that this morning. And I pray for those in our midst who do not know you, that this morning your Spirit would convict them of sin and righteousness, that they might understand the gospel, they might repent and believe as gifts of your grace. Now, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be focused upon this this morning. I pray that you would get me out of the way, that we might only see your glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Whether it is power, desire, or jealousy, the idea of betrayal is on display in the events of human history and illustrated in the annals of literature. Not long into Scripture, and we see deception taking place, as a way to gain advantage, and perhaps we think of the events of Jacob and his father-in-law Laban when Laban pulls an old switcheroo on Jacob and gives him the other daughter in marriage. I always wonder about how that uh, happened, um, how you wouldn't know that this was the woman you thought that you loved, but we know of the deception there of both Jacob and Laban. We think of storied tales of betrayal as portrayed in Lord of the Rings and such things as Gollum's misleading of Frodo and Sam into Shelob's lair because his greatest desire is for the ring of power. And um, sorry if that's a spoiler for anybody. You know I'm going to reference Lord of the Rings from time to time. Or more recently, Peter Pettigrew, who desires his life and gives loyalty to Lord Voldemort rather than his lifelong friends in the tales of Harry Potter. And and again, the Bible knows this both in its recounting of events and in the wisdom literature. Listen to Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24 through 19.5. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. Desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape We know this morning in our passage that we are facing here the beginning of the betrayal of Judas, Judas's betrayal of Jesus. And and we think about the wisdom literature, even these verses that we've read this morning, and here's such thing as a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and this is the opposite of who Judas is to Jesus. Jesus has his companions. The one who sticks closer than a brother is not indicative of Judas. In fact, we will see that indeed um, he is not who his friends think he is. Uh, We think about uh, something like this. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. How is it that Judas, who spent three and a half years with Jesus, hearing every instruction, every rebuke, every encouragement, every 
prophetic word fulfilled could, in his folly, rage against the Lord, find his wealth to be more enticing than friendship with the Lord. And we recall as well at the end of this proverb that we read, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. This is indeed the fate of Judas. And it is the fate of all who would not see Jesus for who He is, not come to Him believing that He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. And yet in their wickedness and in their state of an enemy as an enemy of God, rebel and betray Him. Here's the main idea this morning. Kind of is a, just a snapshot of what we're going to unpack. It's written for you on the back of your worship folder. If you're tuning in from the live stream, this should have been emailed to you. The Lord knows who are His and those who are not. The Lord knows who are His and those who are not His. This brief statement from the Lord that begins the conversation around who would betray Him is the crux, as it were, of our understanding of this in regard to God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, the question that always comes up in regard to Judas, especially because his betrayal is what leads Jesus to the cross. I want us to see this morning three layers of Jesus' comments in which he reveals his betrayal, and really his betrayer as well. Is that not right? Three layers of Jesus' comments in which he reveals his betrayal. And though they do not capture it, his betrayer as well. Number one is this. Jesus speaks openly of the fulfilling of prophecy in this moment. In verses 18 through 20, Jesus speaks openly of the fulfilling of prophecy in this moment. After Jesus tells his disciples that they must serve each other in the way in which he has served them, by the way, a, a precursor to the new command that he gives him later gives them, sorry, later in this passage. He says, because the servant is not greater than the master, he then expresses something very interesting and almost mysterious. Look at verse 18. In light of this command in light of knowing who was from, sent from him or his servant, he says this, verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Concerning the blessedness of those who would follow his example, Jesus declares that not all of them will be blessed because not all of them are chosen. In what sense are they not all chosen? Well, Jesus certainly chose them physically to follow him. There is evidence of this in, in the other Gospels. In fact, uh, one of the Gospels tells us that he prayed fervently all night long the day before he chose his men to follow him. No, this must mean that not all of them are chosen as His elect, those who are His eternally. And certainly, as we consider the events in Judas' life, we would 
understand that this is true of him who does regret his actions, but it does not lead to repentance. It actually leads to the taking of his own life. Concerning the ones or one who is not chosen, Jesus says, however, this is in order to fulfill prophecy. As we heard in our scripture reading this morning, this is taken from Psalm 41. We know that many of the Psalms are reflective of David's life, but also echo uh, that that is they typologically point to the coming Messiah. Uh, D.A. Carson in his commentary is quick to point out that not every element of David's life has direct implications on the life of Messiah. Even in Psalm 41, he talks about being uh, one who has sinned. But when application like this is evident, it is okay to make comparisons and see a greater fulfillment in Christ. David, indeed, is a type of Christ. And when Jesus himself draws the parallel, we see ways in which we too can understand Old Testament echoes of Messiah. In other words, as Jesus interprets this, just a side note of interpretation for us, we are able to do the same thing as we see echoes of Messiah in the Old Testament. And here is one of them. And Jesus says it must be fulfilled. The most basic understanding of this is that this is a betrayal from a close friend. And of course, Jesus is referencing Judas. He knows that it's Judas. The disciples do not yet understand that it is Judas. But in David's life, this is by a man named Ahithophel. Ahithophel was one who conspired with Absalom, uh, David's own son, to try to dethrone David. And it fails. And interestingly, Ahithophel hangs himself. So we not only see echoes of the Lord Jesus, typology of David in the Christ, but also even typology of Judas in Ahithophel. And years down the road, these words would echo in the ears of the disciples, which is what Jesus, in a sense, tells them Next, in the following verses, he expresses the reason for this in verses 19 through 20. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, the one who sent me. And we see once again this great conveil of the idea of the I am statements, especially once the betrayal comes to pass. And I mistakenly attributed that to last week where Jesus says, for so I am. It might be close in proximity to this I am statement, but definitively we have that here in this section. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. And we have drawn out these I am statements in the Gospel of John many times, showing that Jesus is calling himself Yahweh God, the name of the, uh, of, uh, the, the God of Israel. Uh, I am that I am. Yahweh language. Jesus even now uses this with 
his disciples. It seems to secondly convey that those who are his chosen will be sent out by him to declare that he is Yahweh, that those who receive them will receive him and thus the Father, the the meaning of verse 20. So even as you are seeing these things come to pass, my, my, my dear disciples, as I send you out, you are to declare that I am, that, that Jesus is Yahweh God, that He is truly God and truly man. And the one who receives you will receive me. And the one who receives me receives the Father. Again, echoing what Jesus has been saying throughout the entirety of the Gospel of John. He only does what He sees the Father doing. He works as His Father is working. This great Trinitarian theology that we believe is brought into historical reality as Jesus does the will of God on the earth. And even now as he begins to express the sending out of the disciples, which he will do at the end of his time on the earth. So again, see how this fits within the context. He is leaving them. He he, he is getting to this part of of this discussion, this, this, this dialogue where he is going to talk about leaving them. How are are they going to be sent if he is leaving and he brings in the theology of the Holy Spirit and comforts them with that? And when we think about this kind of sending, when we think about what Jesus ultimately does with the disciples, we call this the Great Commission. We were reminded that the disciples and their heirs will teach all that Jesus has taught. Certainly, this is the greatest lesson that God, true God, the eternal Son of God, put on humanity and walked the earth, lived a perfect life, died the death that sinners deserved, and rose again. And they will testify as they go forth, even as we testify as we go forth, that Jesus is the I Am. And they will testify that He is the great I Am by proofs such as this prophecy coming true. And let me just pause and say just a a word of application here for us this morning. Church, we must proclaim this as well. We must proclaim the good news. Uh, We we talk many times in this local assembly about how we are so tempted to compartmentalize our lives and say we have our our work life, our our home life, our our enjoyment, our, our, our hobbies, whatever. And we kind of have our church life. And we don't want to tag Jesus as an appendix on our life. No, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the heart of our life. We must proclaim the good news as well. And so therefore, my proclamation this morning to the lost who are in our midst is to turn from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. His perfect life, death, and resurrection. What we have seen in these verses is but the first layer in Jesus' comments about his betrayal, the fulfilling of prophecy, a bit shrouded in mystery as it were. But now we see in our second point, Jesus speaks candidly concerning his betrayal in verses 21 through 25. First, we notice now for the second time in recent context, Jesus is troubled in his spirit. Look at uh, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is not only another layer in our text here, but another layer in the progress toward the cross, which is the ultimate 
reason for Jesus' heart being troubled, if you recall from the beginning of John chapter 13. He is troubled at the prospect of the justice that he will receive upon the cross. And another layer of this is the betrayal and the betrayer. So Jesus plainly speaks of one betraying him here, as we saw in verse 21. But this candid statement puzzles his followers. Look at verses 22 through 25. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? I love that there are these kind of like, in the midst of these very heavy things, almost this scene of levity, as it were, for us to think about. Now many suppose, and I think rightly so, that the one who is leaning against Jesus is actually John the Apostle who is writing these words, and out of humility he doesn't name himself. But you kind of see this scene here, and it's a little bit comical. You know, they're kind of, Jesus makes this statement, and they're looking around at each other, Again, just so oblivious to who this may be, which on the one hand tells us that Judas has done a good job of faking it. And, and they're looking at each other quizzically. And I, 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 I presume that Judas is even going like, I've got to cover this up somehow. I need to look like I don't know who this is either. For Satan had already put it in Judas's heart to betray Jesus, we saw earlier. But Peter... You know, the outspoken one of the group, who usually speaks up, kind of goes, John, ask him, who is it? They didn't have any clue. And again, we're reminded that some folks can hide themselves easily in the garb of Christianity and not be revealed as those who are anti-Christ until later. John, indeed, Perhaps even with Judas in mind, and his first epistle says, they went out from us because they were not of us. Then they seek to find out from Christ of whom he is speaking. Peter sort of tried to under the radar, you know, hand signal to John somehow find out who it is. So we uncover. Another layer of Jesus' comments about his betrayer and his betrayal. We're reminded that even as the disciples are unaware of the hearts of their closest companions, so too are we. They don't know. They don't have a clue. Jesus plainly speaks about his betrayal. In fact, he gives a, a, a very descript statement later on about who it is and, and, and a, a symbol of that. They still don't get it. And and the reminder to me this morning, as we are in a room full of disciples here this morning, professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is, I don't know your heart, just as you don't know my heart. On the one hand, we need to be willing to receive those who make professions of faith and truly seem to be following Jesus without reservation. Um, In other words, it is not our job to be spiritual fruit inspectors all the time looking at what 
what production of fruit do they have in their lives? And rather than looking at our own selves and asking, am I loving the Lord and loving neighbor today? Not that there's not a place for accountability. We'll talk about that in a moment. But can we rejoice with those who make professions of faith and come alongside of those who are new in the faith and and need input, need instruction from us? It is the elder's job to do that, yes, but it is also the elder's job to equip the saints for the work of ministry that we might come alongside of one another and encourage each other. On the other hand, we do need to be, we do need to not be surprised when, as according to 1 John, they went out from us because they were not of us. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 7, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do many things in your name? And they begin to list the things that they did. And what does Jesus say? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. The reality is, this is the safeguard of the local assembly and the accountability of the church and church discipline. This is when we see people starting to stray, the the love that compels us to go to them and say, Please repent of your sin. Not because we're up here and you're down here, but because we understand the struggle of sin. Turn from it and live for Christ if you claim to be in Christ. It's loving. It's not condemning. It's not judging. It's discerning, that kind of judgment. But that safeguard is the local assembly. The safeguard is the love and care of the local church for one another in that way. Perhaps you're in our midst this morning and you realize, rather than a follower of Jesus, you are secretly a betrayer of Jesus. You know the right things to say. You have been in church maybe your whole life. You um, know the right actions to do. But in your heart of hearts, you are a rebel and a betrayer. My call to you this morning is to turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. Don't be like Judas. The first two layers of Jesus' communication regarding his betrayal and his betrayer have slowly uncovered the betrayer, but now Jesus makes plain who his betrayer is, though the disciples still do not grasp it as we see And our final point, Jesus speaks directly to Judas about his betrayal in verses 26 through 30. To John's question, Jesus responds as we see in verse 26. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Even with this extremely visual move, we find out later that disciples had not made the connection. But it is clear that Jesus and Judas have made the connection. At this point, we get a commentary from John about what occurs. This has to be one of the most shocking and heart-wrenching exchanges in all of Scripture. 
Then after he had taken the morsel, this is speaking of Judas, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. What does it mean that Satan entered into him, into Judas? It seems as if Judas already had allowed Satan to influence him to betray Jesus. And now that it is the time for that act, Satan is a part of that act. The question, though, that arises maybe in your mind is, is Judas actually possessed by Satan? This would seem to be the most significant opportunity for Satan to undermine God's plan. That is for Jesus to be arrested and killed. So if it were that Satan literally entered into Judas, that would make sense. If John is rather signaling that this is ultimately a satanically driven act by Judas, that makes sense as well. I like what the New Testament scholar Tasker says, quote, When Jesus offers Judas a special morsel from the common dish, such as it was customary for the host to offer to an honored guest, it is a mark of divine love which never, I'm sorry, which ever seeks to overcome evil with good. But at this critical hour in human destiny, divine love is temporarily impotent. For it is the hour of darkness, and the prince of this world is allowed to marshal his forces for the final combat unmolested. In accepting the sop, the dipped bread, Judas shows himself completely impervious to the appeal of love. And from that moment, he is wholly a tool of Satan. So whether he is actually possessed by Satan, or this is just kind of the final step in Satan's overtaking of Judas in order for this to take place. He is, in that moment, a tool of Satan. Jesus' words here are also piercing. John's commentary is piercing about Satan entering into Judas, but Jesus' words are more piercing. I was reading this out loud to Amber earlier in the week and I broke down at this. Jesus knows what Judas is about to do and he tells essentially, uh, he he tells uh, essentially what he says, confirms it here. Judas does not stop and seek to explain. He simply does what he's going to do. How devastating. How utterly devastating. Can you imagine being with the Lord Jesus here on the earth day after day after day? This this, this is not the Pharisees who are coming to attack Jesus, who in their own way rebel against him. This is one of his own, one that he has chosen physically to follow him, but clearly has not chosen spiritually But he has heard, as I mentioned earlier, the same sermons, the same rebukes. He is in proximity to Jesus in a way that we wish we could be. And yet, he betrays him. Jesus says, what you do, go and do quickly. How devastating. And yet, Our rebellion and betrayal are the same. We are aware of the truth. 
We are aware of sin's destruction. And there are times when we as Christians go ahead with our betrayal in spite of this. I think it was... Uh, I'm not going to remember his name. A, a, a Puritan who, who said that we, when we act like this, we act like practical atheists. We act as if God doesn't exist. We act as if Jesus is not our Savior. How devastating. The exchange is quite enough, or at least would seem that way since the other disciples don't know what's going on. Look at verse 29. Some of them thought that because Judas had the money back, Jesus was telling him to buy what he needed for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. In other words, hey, this is our treasurer. Jesus clearly has some sort of a task for him to do according to his his role, his function here. He's going to go out and maybe buy some more food or give to the poor. It's an interesting The very opposite is true. What is he going to do? In betraying Jesus, he's going to fill his money bag more. But under the cover of night, Judas goes to betray Jesus. Look at verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Just give us a few thoughts as we have seen these layers now unfold. Number one is this. God is sovereign. As we look at events like, especially the event of Judas's betrayal of Jesus, we must grapple with God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. There is no part of this that is a surprise to the triune God. This is the eternal plan of God from before the foundations of the world. We call this in theology the covenant of redemption. Now, I always like to give you little Latin or Greek phrases that you can impress your family with, especially important on a holiday weekend when you're cooking out. Uh, we call this the pactum salutis. Just kind of throw that around tomorrow and see what kind of enjoyment you get out of that. The covenant of redemption. Louis Burkhoff in his theology, systematic theology defines it this way. The agreement between the Father giving the Son as the head and redeemer of the elect and the Son voluntarily taking the place of those whom the Father had given Him. This eternal before-time agreement. This doctrine is taken from such places as Ephesians 1, verse 1, where in the midst of expounding the greatness of our Trinitarian salvation, Paul states, "...in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will." In other words, there is nothing that comes to pass that is not ordained by God after His counsel, the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1 verse 11. While holding that God is sovereign, though we must also hold that man is responsible. God is not the cause of evil. Evil, in fact, is the twisting and manipulating of the good that God has created. Though we may... Say God ordains everything that comes to pass. It is by use of secondary causes or means that God accomplishes His will through the evil acts of men. Think of Genesis chapter 50 where Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives unto this day. The same thing could be said of Judas, what he intended for evil, God intended for good. 
This is the peace that Judas plays. But we must not think of him as a puppet on any strings. No, this is a willful decision from a man who ultimately hates Jesus and hates God. And would desire money and perhaps even safety over sacrifice and love of the Lord. Judas willfully goes and does this. Why else would he have regret? And even in that regret, ending his own life by hanging just as Ahithophel did when he betrayed David. Judas is the greater Ahithophel if Christ is the greater David. Betrayal unto a necessary death, but betrayal nonetheless. Um, think, uh, turn with me to Acts. We, we turn here often to see this, but I, I want you to see it again this morning. So important. Acts chapter 2. Keep your finger in John. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Acts is a right-hand turn in your Bible. Just one book over. Acts chapter 2. Verse 22, men of Israel, Paul, or Peter, I'm sorry, is speaking, is preaching here to those who've gathered uh, at the feast of Pentecost. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Pause there for a moment. What was part of that definite plan and foreknowledge? that Judas would betray Jesus. But keep reading. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There we see the combination of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. You can turn back over to John chapter 13. No, Judas is not free from responsibility here. I love what Beasley Murray states in his commentary, John saw in Judas a fearful example of one who walked with the Lord but finally obeyed the voice of the tempter. And we know that even as believers, we can, for a moment in time, betray or rebel against the Lord. Why? Because we are awaiting our redemption, the redemption of our flesh. Even still, it is not based upon our merit that God accepts us, but Christ's. And therefore, we must be those who regularly confess our sins and realize that even though our sins are displeasing to a holy God, the reality of our justification before Him is found in Christ and His completed work. Let us confess our sins and thus also live lives in accordance with His will, loving and obeying Him and loving and serving our neighbors. And when we fall short and when in our hearts we betray, we are reminded that we are not Judas, but we are Peter. What did Peter do? 
denied the Lord three times. And there's a moment of restoration before the Lord ascends. After his resurrection, he comes to Peter and tells him what he ought to be doing. We're not Judas if we're in Christ. We're Peter. There are moments of betrayal, of non-association with the Lord. And we come and we say, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have an advocate, John goes on to say, with God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's not based on anything that we have done. It's all based on the finished work of Christ. And so we come confessing, resting in Christ. The challenge as well for us believers, especially those who are members or regular attenders of Fellowship Bible Church, the, the, the challenge for us is to also come alongside of one another and encourage each other to live in this way, to live in, in a way that is true to the Lord Jesus. Let me just say right now, I know of people in this church who need discipleship. They need someone to come alongside of them and to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. And, and, and maybe you're saying, well, isn't that what we pay you for, Jason? Well, yes. But look around and see how many people there are here who need one another. It's not only up to the elders. Who will take up this loving duty? Lastly, I must say, if you have not trusted Christ, you are in a constant state of rebellion. You are at this point a betrayer of Jesus and unable to make your relationship with God right. You are at odds with God. The good news is in Romans 5, Paul says that even while we were still enemies and godless and haters of God, Christ died for you. So it is not hopeless my call to you is to turn from your sin this morning and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who you currently are betraying and rebel against, but he can bring new life through repentance and faith. Would you pray with me? Lord, we trust in your sovereignty this morning. We trust that if you are drawing men and women boys and girls, to yourself in our midst this morning, that you are doing so by your Spirit even now, that you are convicting them of sin and of righteousness, and that you would open their eyes, even through the word preached this morning, through your Spirit, that you would give them faith and repentance, that they would turn from their sin and trust only in Christ, and that, Lord, we can't manufacture that. That is your work. And so we pray for that this morning. We pray for... Believers as well, Lord, saints in this uh, gathering this morning, Lord, that we know that we fall short of your glory and that in reality it is the glory and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that is imputed to us. Therefore, we are able to do what you call us to do and we are able and so thankful that we can confess our sin when we fall short because we do have an advocate with God the Father. So, Lord, help us to live lives of faithfulness and confession. Our desire is to be faithful, but we know that we will fail from time to time, Lord, every day, really. So help us to be those who keep short accounts with you. 
And let us also be those who uh, come alongside of one another and encourage each other to walk faithfully as well. Lord, help us to be in the midst and, and thriving in discipleship relationships, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.